I want to invite you as well to turn in a Bible if you've got one. Uh, There should be uh, Bibles around if you need one. Of course, you could let us know. We'd love for you to have one and take one home today. Uh, But wherever you can find uh, access to Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 1 is where we're going to be. As you're turning there, I'm going to give you an update or at least uh, try to bring you up to speed on what we're doing. We started last week considering this epistle. Epistle is a is a word that we give that it means letter. The Apostle Paul penned 13 of these that are recorded for us in the New Testament. And this particular letter we gave an introduction to last week. It's a letter that he wrote to Timothy, who considered a child, a son in the faith. I guess, uh, you know, much like I consider Brian, apparently. And the idea here in the way that the letter is written is to give encouragement He gives us the reason that he wrote the letter that we discussed last week in the third chapter of 1 Timothy. The reason that it was written was so that he would know, not only Timothy would know, but all of those who read his writing and are in the scope of his teaching and ministry would know how to behave in the church, which is the household of God. And that church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. In other words, Paul's letter has a purpose because Timothy needs to have a purpose And the church needs to have a purpose. This is the chain of command that Paul sees, and it's why he's moved by the Spirit of God to write this letter. We called this consideration, this idea, this chain of command, order in the house. It gives the idea that we are under a standard, that we exist not as a social club. We exist not of our own volition. The church is not here because all of us are bored on Sunday mornings and we determine to come up with some ways to interact. That as much as we possibly can, we recognize, rejoice in, and receive the church from God's command. He initiates it. It's the Spirit of God that moves in the world. And if we are to be the household that He wants us to be, if we call God our Father, then there are some ways that we need to live, some things that mark us, and we don't get to choose what marks us in many ways. Now, it will will be contextualized in many ways, language and customs, and the way that we come at people's particular idols or their temptations. Of course, all of this will be contextual, but the chief marks in here, in our house. It's as though God's calling as as father, he's calling a family meeting. I don't know if your family ever had family meetings. Everybody gathers around the dinner table and they say, we need to reorient some things. That's what's happening here. Order in the house is the context in which Paul is writing to Timothy. So after this short introduction, not only from me last week, but also in the first two verses of 1 Timothy, some by custom and then also uh, to give us an idea of the recipient of the letter and the purpose, Paul moves straight to the point. He moves from an introduction in verses 1 and 2 to his concern for the teaching of the church. And so if I gave a title for this, we're going to look at verses 3 through 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, and what we're going to get is an introduction to what I mentioned as one of the main themes of the book last week, and that is ordered thinking. So if I had to describe it, we're not going to, cut, we're not going to be done with this today. He's going to come back to it again and again and again. So I might call it Ordered Thinking 101, Ordered Thinking Introduction, the reality that how we cast our attention, that what we give our thoughts to will shape us, 
This is an inescapable reality of life, that your mind and its connection to the heart that we're going to see this morning, your mind and its connection to the heart is not random. It is not powerless, that it must be and can be, and this should be something that we rejoice in, it can be and must be directed in certain ways. Ultimately, or finally, much of what makes up our life, of what we think of our life, especially our inner life and the things that we say and how we feel about things, and then ultimately what we commit ourselves to, our affections, our hearts, our money, our time, begin as seeds of thinking. And as we feed what we think on and how we think it will shape who we are, that's what we're going to find. That's the introduction that Paul's going to give to Timothy, I believe, in ordered thinking 101. That's the idea. So let's read now 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, and we'll give some ideas of how we're going to walk through this. It's the third verse, 1 Timothy chapter 1. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. We've read the Word of God. Our confession that this is that this Word is living, it's active, it's for us. So let's pray and position our hearts and ask God to make that so in us. Let's pray together. God, thank you that we can call you Father. I pray that your love for us, your care for us, your affection for us would make us feel a part of the family this morning, that there would be something in us, a, a kind of longing, Scripture calls it a cry, O Spirit of God, help us to cry this morning, Abba, Father. And then we pray, Father, teach us to think. Teach us how to direct our attention, our time. Help us to be honest about the things that we stew over. I pray, too, for a commitment not only from church members, but from all that would teach, all that would have influence, the discussions that happen formally and informally. Father, help us to be shaped in ways that are pleasing to you. I pray, God, that all of, our, all of our sins, all of our weaknesses, just the, even the sleepiness of our souls so often, I pray, God, that you would help us to shake those things this morning, not in our own effort, but that there would be a real rest of soul as we gather, that the things that we've sung, all that we say to be true about the forgiveness that we have, that our sin was great, but Jesus, you are greater. I pray that these would not be mere sentiments, but we would know them from the depth of our soul. 
God, I pray that especially for those who are struggling this morning, who are doubting, who feel, who feel as though they have been beaten up by the world, by their own minds and hearts and flesh, languishing with bitterness or sin or being sinned against. God, heal and comfort. And I pray that you do that through your word. May we be an example of what Scripture is teaching today, that by ordering our thinking and pressing our attention towards Scripture, that you would give us love, a pure heart, a good conscience, that this possibility would become reality for us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I felt it was probably a good idea to give some historical context or at least sort of geographical context to the letter. We mentioned it last week. I told you that where Timothy is ministering and where most of these problems are coming from is in a city called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus should be a well-known name to those of us who have read much of the New Testament. It is, in fact, the namesake of another letter that Paul writes in the New Testament. He writes a letter to the Ephesians. But here we have a behind the scenes of that letter, or at least of that church, and Timothy has been charged with staying there and ministering to these people in this place. So before we get to the idea of thinking and Paul's concern, he starts by giving some context. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Remain at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus was important to Paul for a number of reasons. One, if you wanted to be as pragmatic as possible, the church at Ephesus was important because it was influential in the world. It was rich. It was on a port. It had many people coming and going. It was a place of philosophy. It was a place of production and manufacturing. It was also a place of idolatry and a place of competing interests religiously. There was a very prominent, or at least a a sort of consistent and full Jewish population there that was somewhat respected and had a practice of continuing in conversation about many matters of faith. So pragmatically, Ephesus is an important city. But more than that, I believe that Ephesus is an important city because Paul and his missionary journeys devoted much of his time there, years, and he likely would have been considered the planter of this church Though it says that when he first went to Ephesus, there were already some disciples there. They were a little bit confused, but they were fervent. These are the disciples at Ephesus that upon finding them, they had only heard about John the Baptist, not about the baptism related to Jesus and faith in him. As we consider or think about, well, how did Paul plant this church and what happened there? We can follow the importance of Ephesus and the Ephesians in the New Testament over three chapters in the middle of Acts. So I'm going to take a little bit of time and walk us starting in chapter 18 through the founding of this church at Ephesus. How did it become important and what is it about this church that has Paul on edge and says, Timothy, I need to charge you, stay there and pay attention. So here are some of the things that we see. I'm starting to see cold again. We could probably bump air up a couple. I'm trying to figure it out. You know, this weather, it's up, it's down, it's sideways, it's left. So, starting in chapter 18, I'm going to begin in verse 18 of chapter 18. 
this is what it tells us. Scripture tells us this. After this, and again, if you want to, to have a, an exciting view of the early Christian church, just read Acts. Anytime there's an after this, it was probably something crazy prior to, right? So Paul's been active in missionary journeys. And it tells us, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Kenkre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. There's a haircut in the Bible. He was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. So they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, Priscilla and Aquila. They will become important later because Apollos, who was a very eloquent and wonderful teacher, was a Jewish person who was sincere, he would need to be corrected about this baptism issue by Priscilla and Aquila. So they came to Ephesus, and he, meaning Paul, left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. Then it tells us that he really set sail from Ephesus. He goes all the way across the Mediterranean, lands over closer to where modern-day Israel is now at Caesarea. Well, it turns out that it was God's will that he would return. Priscilla and Aquila and many of the Christians that were there, those Jews that he had reasoned with, began to grow and be a sort of burgeoning small church. The church, by the Spirit of God, had been planted in Ephesus. And then, because it was God's will, he tells them, if it's God's will, I'll come back. Paul does come back. This time, he grants their request, and he stays there for a long time. We're going to read in Acts chapter 19 that he stays there for a long time, stretching into years But I want you to note that in those years, he was not only an apostle to them, meaning he didn't just show up and reason in the synagogues, but when you give years of your life to a place like this, he would have known the people. He was an apostle, not only an apostle, but also a shepherd to them. And there's a difference. Many times, some of our best teachers in life, many of our best professors in life are those not only who were wonderful in a classroom, but who also gave time and understood you and were willing to speak about issues they had questions about. That was the ministry that Paul would have had there. And that's what we read about in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 8. It tells us this in Acts 19, he entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew for them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This shows us the ministry that Paul had ongoing for years, also the difficulty that he had by critics and false teachers, and then also the strategic importance of Ephesus. Do you see the strategic importance of Ephesus? By positioning himself there for years, getting to know the people, it says that all of Asia came to hear the gospel. This city, full of real people, was not only a start of a church plant, but it also was a wonderful megaphone to much of the the known world. So Paul positions himself there strategically. As he teaches, the residents of Asia hear the word of the Lord. I want to just note, we're going to get to Acts chapter 20 in a second. In Acts chapter 20, he does take leave of them again. It's a wonderful goodbye. We'll read about it in just a moment. But if you spend a lot more time in Acts chapter 19 and read it, you realize that the impact of the Spirit of God and the preaching of the gospel was drastic in this place. 
So what happens in Ephesus is not only the planting of a church, but a revival in, in Ephesus. And if I, if I really am honest and check my notes, no, it, it should say a riot in Ephesus. This was a riotous revival. It is in Ephesus that so many people are converted to Christianity that it tanks the blacksmithing industry for idols. Imagine this. There's an entire uh, bit of commerce. I was going to say e-commerce. Not as a, we're a few millennia behind. There's a, an entire economy around the sale of idols. So many people come to know Jesus that it tanks the entire thing. And in, as a result of this, there is a crowd of people. The city takes up, takes up issue with Paul, drags him into the amphitheater, crying out, great is Artemis. Great is Artemis over and over and over and over again. Paul has to essentially protect himself, defend himself, and eventually withdraw strategically. This church was planted in a riot. In one of the years that I spent traveling the world and doing missionary kind of stuff, we got to sit in this amphitheater. You can actually go to the ruins of Ephesus now. The, the sea is withdrawn some, so it's not a port city. It's all basically ruins. At the time that we went, there should have been far more care taken so that people didn't jump all over everything and break things. But it was a pretty far off place with not much fanfare except for us. And you can envision the amphitheater where everyone is just crying out and yelling, essentially drive them out of town, stone them. So this church was planted in a riotous revival. That's the impact of the preaching of God in Ephesus. After these years, Paul has to take leave of them, and that's what we find in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, I believe, is one of the, the most wonderful descriptions in Scripture of what it looks like to pastor people well and for a congregation to get to know someone. This is what it tells us starting in verse 25 of Acts chapter 20. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone, out, gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testi testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink back, shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now listen to what he says. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In Acts chapter 20, standing on the shore to send off, Paul tells them a couple of things. Remember, I gave you, what I gave you was nothing other than the whole counsel of God. And also remember this, when I leave, I know that wolves are coming. People will teach false and crazy things. Then more than that, and this is where we're going to pick up in 1 Timothy, more than that, he says, not only will some people teach crazy things, but they will be some of you. This isn't quite the drama of Jesus at the Last Supper saying, one of you will betray me, and then looking around. 
but it's close. The same kind of thing. Paul's looking over this group of people who love him, and he loves them, and he's saying, and among yourselves, if you don't watch your thinking, if you don't watch your doctrine, you will teach twisted things. And this brings us back to Paul's concern at the outset. He's told us, he's told Timothy, that the reason he urged him to stay here, to remain at Ephesus, so that he would charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations. Paul has been consistent in his departure, his tearful departure. What happens is that many of the church, the leaders especially, they grab Paul by his neck and it says that they weep over him and pray together before he goes. It's a wonderful leaving from Ephesus. But his concern is utterly and completely consistent, and that is you have been given a stewardship. It's a stewardship that I received from God. I've been giving it to you, And that stewardship is the way that we think about the truth and how we handle it and what we say. I would say that it's these two points. It's it's circular, but they're connected and they they cannot be separated. And that is this, and we're going to think about these two things that he mentions in these verses. Right thinking leads to right being. That's the idea that he's saying. Right thinking the things that we have received, the doctrine that we have, ordered thinking will lead to ordered being. And I'm using the word being here, of course, in a particular way to describe that inner life of the soul because that's what he says, our aim, our aim is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I don't know what to describe that as except for our inner life, the way that we are, the people that we are. And this will be important because there will be a string from the things that we give our attention to if we have ordered thinking, it will lead to ordered being, and then Jesus and the testimony of Scripture as well as all of our lives show us that when we have ordered being, when we wake up in the morning and who we are in the, in the inner person is what ends up spilling out into our real lives. That who we are and the things that we say and the level of our sarcasm and the jokes that we make and the media that we consume and the anger that we carry or the bitterness or the resentment that we have, our ability to forgive or our ability to stew over things, our ability to resist temptation, our desire to love others well, all of these things will flow from ordered being. So ordered thinking leading to ordered being You could say right thinking leading to right being is going to be what we look at. First the thinking and then the being. But I want to make a point at the outset. Oftentimes or commonly what happens is that thinking comes first. So we learn and we cast our minds and we meditate on things and then that shapes who we are. But we're going to find in 1 Timothy over and over again is that this is a a circular kind of thing. It's reciprocal in nature that also our temptations and our moral life will many times tempt us to shift the things that we think about. It's difficult to think about truth if our lives are hidden in darkness, right? I mean, these kind of things will be circular. So let's look at what does he say concerning thinking? 
Timothy's command is that he would charge certain persons about their teaching. Now, the first thing to notice is that this is the same word. Actually, it's the same concept that he gave at the outset of 1 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command. Remember we said that order in the house, Paul was going to tell him right from the start, I want you to know I'm ordered as well. I'm an apostle, but I'm under command. That same word or that same concept of command is given then to Timothy. You ought to command certain persons. In fact, this idea of charging someone is pulled straight from military language that describes a chain of command that's supposed to go down through a particular regiment. So Timothy, in order to bring the, the house back into shape, when we put it back into shape, I'm under command and I'm giving you a command and you need to command others to command the church in the right way. And here's what he tells them not to do. So one of the helpful things is here's how not to think. This is what you should avoid. That's what he starts with. This is what you should avoid. And here's a list of some of these things. So if we have a heading of ordered thinking, it's actually disordered thinking that gives us a path to the right kind of things. First, he says, tell them not to teach any different doctrines. No different doctrine. Now, this is interesting. I think it's interesting because of how exclusive it is. It's not, don't teach those different doctrines that are the bad ones. It's any different doctrine than the gospel that they had been given and they'd heard from him. Any different one. There is no Jesus and then also God approves of or another path to God is this other kind of thing. There's not a list of four approved doctrines and then sometimes people are making ones that are not approved there is only one path, Jesus declaring, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the same spirit and exclusivity that Paul has been preaching his whole life, and it's what he's given to the church. So any different doctrine, any different doctrine excluded. And I believe that what he would say is the way to guard against a different doctrine is to remain committed to the doctrine that was once delivered. We must confront the temptation in all of us, especially teachers, to desire to tell something new, something novel, something that you couldn't get anywhere else. And it is, I believe, a temptation that is in both teacher and in hearer. Sometimes what I would want to be known for or what people of, that have a, a responsibility to teach like I would have or any elder in a church there is a little temptation of soul to, be want, to want to be the one who just has the things that other people don't say or didn't think of. And I might say that many of us, me being a part of a member of a church as well, and you being here as a part of this church, I think we should just be honest that sometimes we kind of wish we were a part of a church like that too. You got to come visit my church. You just wouldn't, you just wouldn't believe the, the insight. You wouldn't believe just like the, it's just a cutting edge it's just, a, it's a new thing. It's different. It's just different. We all want to be unique in a particular way. And what Paul says is, here's the thing. We all need to understand this temptation. They said it in Acts chapter 17. We saw this last week as well as when we preached through Acts 17 a couple weeks back. The Athenians would spend all day arguing about and sharing only things that were new. Old gossip isn't enough. 
It's funny because we've carried forward a greeting in our world, and I, I find myself saying it often. What's new? What's new? It's the way we greet one another because the implication there is like, well, I, I don't want to hear what's old, let me tell you. I'm kind of sick of that. Again, now this is going to be as churchy and cliche as, as I can get. I'm going there because I think it's true. Standard greeting, I think what Paul says to Timothy is standard greeting in the household of God ought to be joyfully looking at one another when we greet and say, what's old? See how cheesy that is? But do you know how penetratingly true that is? Our life depends on our ability to stay committed to, devoted to, animated by, in love with the one doctrine once delivered. That's what Paul says. And we need to be honest about the temptation that we have to say something new. Calvin once said that his entire goal in teaching faithful ministers was to tell them that they are now not permitted to coin any new doctrine, just to remind them. You don't get to be the discoverer. Now, I'm curious about a lot of things in the world. Sometimes I think to myself, remember when I was a kid, I read the history of my small town in North Dakota. It was called Manville. And the reason it was called Manville, it's not a ville, it's a vel, because it was named after John Manville. And at the time, I was, I was thinking to myself, well, why can't things be named after me? I want to discover new things. I want to have my name on things. And this is a, a common way that we honor people in the world. I think what Paul says is, listen, there's plenty of the world out there to get your name on stuff. But we don't put our name on any of the stuff in here. This is God's house, and this is God's teaching. And when we line up, and when we follow along, he sets the rules. So they are to coin no new doctrine, but to cleave to the doctrine. This is what Calvin continues, to cleave to the doctrine to which God has subjected men without exception. And I would say that God has subjected churches without exception to this doctrine. I love that Calvin used the word cleave. It's the word the scripture uses for a marriage. We are in covenant with the gospel that we have been given. Now, can I say one thing quickly as well? I think what this means is that we need to have a mutual understanding of what this place, and especially a Sunday morning, is for. I have felt great tension and difficulty and in times given much thought and much prayer and sometimes sleeplessness over thinking about what do I give my opinions on or what do we have a stance on? Now, I would just say, especially for these moments in the gathered church, right, I would want to say to you, and I hope that you would hold me to this as well, that I have been given a limited scope of expertise and authority in this place. So, though I am curious about a million things, I ought not to be seen nor expected to be an expert in anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ as it applies to living out the life of the church in our day. Now, I know living out the life of the church in our day, there's many discussions that can spin out of this. And if you and I have pastoral conversations or you're worried about something, I will, of course, engage and I want to be wise about what is bothering the world out there. But when we're gathered here at the family table, I do not believe that I have the right. It's, it's actually me as a bully 
if I pretend to be an expert in any other area of life. And in fact, if I ever did, and let's just pull it down the tension a little bit from politics or that kind of thing. Even if, in teaching through Genesis, I give a three-part series on microbiology and the expertise of science, you should be saying to yourself, well, I'll just give myself a little honor. You might say to yourself, well, that's interesting and, and unique. But really what you should say is, but can we get back to what we're called to do? There's a sense of that, that we need to get back. So, I should not pontificate powerfully, we'll just go one more alliteration, from this pulpit on areas of expertise or interest other than the doctrine that has come. And not because those other things are not significant or not because they don't have importance or not because you're not wrestling with them, but because of here of all places at this dinner table, ordered under the Father, if here of all places we don't have a devotion, a cleaving to the doctrine, where else will we do so? We've been given a stewardship. That's what Paul tells Timothy, we've been given a stewardship. We have limited range and authority. Now, here's the good news. It turns out that by having limited range and authority and cleaving to that one particular doctrine, that is the most fruitful, life-giving thing we could possibly do. We are not bound and hindered and restricted in a way that makes us miserable We must not create or desire a church that thinks on and becomes an expert on on areas of life because we think that somehow we're more wise than what God has given us. There's not a path to a greater understanding somewhere else. Now, I don't think that's an aside. I was going to say, okay, let's get back. That's an aside. I, I think it's pretty front and center. What are we doing here is the question I think that Paul's asking to Timothy. And if anyone, I mean, I think we could talk about these if you want to. I know we need to be Christian citizens out there, and I hope that you are, I hope that you are just armed with love and understanding and reasoning and winsome conversation. I believe that. But I mean here, what, what are we inside the household of God? So the first thing we do is don't teach other doctrines. That's what Paul tells Timothy. And I love how he says, charge certain persons. Now, later in Timothy, it's going to get a little more spicy. He's going to name names. He's going to say, okay, let me tell you who it is. But for now, he says certain persons, not once but twice, and I think that's because they would have been known to him. Paul doesn't even have to name them. He says, like, well, you, you know who I'm talking about. You ever been in a conversation, you don't even have to say who it is? You know what I mean, right? Everybody's, everybody's there. Certain persons should not be doing this, not teaching different doctrines. Second, here's the thing to avoid in your thinking. Do not devote yourselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. There was a group of Pharisees, especially Jewish leaders at the time, a group of Pharisees that had expanded not only the rule book, you know, Jewish people expand the rule book, that was what what Pharisees are, our Pharisees were always charged with and always have the the reputation for being the kind of people who expand the rule book. But the interesting thing about the group of Pharisees, the people didn't know, they didn't, they didn't spend all day only talking about the rules. There's a lot of time in the day. So Pharisees had also expanded what I would just call the mystery book. Pharisees had an entire other group of literature related to the true and real genealogies of the Israelites. 
There were many groups of Pharisees that had come up with all kinds of deeper knowledge to show that you were really elite and really in. So the temptation to different doctrine or just of the soul had created a group of Christians then who were in many ways imitating this group of Pharisees. They wanted to be Christian versions of rabbis that they had seen who had respect in the Jewish world. And it led them to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies and speculations. Many of the heresies of the early church followed this particular line. And if we wanted to name names, I'll say a few here and now, I believe that it is possible for you, if you're not careful, to devote yourself and be inordinately attached to end times research to the particulars of soteriology, to infralapsarianism. Also, you can become devoted to and addicted to the Bible code and the secret mysteries of numerology in Scripture. I don't know if, if you've been there or if you're this person, but we've all known a person. So can I say it this way? We should charge certain persons not to get so worked up about numbers in the Bible, right? Can you think of certain people? This still happens today. There are, there are just moments where we, we just shift our affection. And don't do this. Speculations are fun. And here's the thing about speculations. Not only are they endlessly imaginative and without end, but they also can never be checked and never given solid ground. You know how great it would be? I mean, I could speculate on everything. Well, what do you think Paul was like with Timothy? You think, they'd, think they had like a handshake together? You think they had a... I mean, that stuff's fun. It's just that it doesn't lead us anywhere. Solid. I think that's what Paul's saying. And I think the word there is devote. It's key. It's not like we should excommunicate the first person who talks about these things or says to themselves, that's interesting to me, and it has my curiosity peaked, and I might give a little time to it. No, the idea here is to watch for devotion. Don't be devoted to these things. He goes on and he says, so the first thing, not a different doctrine. This is what to avoid for ordered thinking. Don't teach different doctrines. Second, don't become devoted to these myths. Third, and he adds this in, and something we should all think about and realize is jarring, no vain discussions. He wraps up vain and wasteful discussions right in there underneath heresy. That our commitment to inane conversations, in other words, cotton candy conversations, just the, the kind that just disappear, we can be caught up also in vanity and it is as dangerous to our souls as heresy. I believe that this is one of the difficulties of our modern world. There is endless vanity to get into. How many more talk forums do you need to jump on to debate FSU's football ranking when the BCS comes out? Right? I mean, there comes a point where it just becomes a commitment to a wasting of life. 2 Timothy chapter 2, he's going to repeat this to, to him to, make, to note the danger. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, avoid irreverent babble. Babble, just vanity. It leads people into more and more ungodliness. Finally, under the category of ordered thinking, not only don't teach different doctrines and devote to the right one, not only don't be devoted, that's the word, devote yourself to myths, avoid vanity. Just ask yourself, is this worth it? 
You ever been in a conversation like an hour into it, it's really heated and everything's going on and then you have an out-of-body experience and you realize, what am I doing? I'm wasting my whole life. How did I get here? Who am I? Who are you? Can we stop this? You ever been in the middle of that? Avoid that, Paul says to Timothy. Tell them to avoid that. And then finally, something of the heart. He says they desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't have any understanding of what they're saying or the things they're making confident assertions. There can be glory-seeking in teaching. In other words, check your pride. Here's a thing to avoid if you want to stay committed in your thinking. Check your pride. All of us have a kind of glory-seeking in being the one who's in the know. Maybe not all of us. I'm probably projecting a little bit. I've always wanted that. Built my whole identity for years and years and years on the kid who had the answers. Oh, do you want to know? Do you want to know? Do you want to know? You know how often I try to kill in me the response to anything ever, anything that someone says? I say, I know. It's subtle, but it's subconscious. I didn't want them to think I didn't know. There is glory seeking and teaching. Now, here's the problem. He says, these people have gone off and they're so confident and so want to be desires, they are confident idiots. This is a hard place to pull someone back from. Pompously stupid. You know anyone like that? They're so confident, it's overwhelming, and then you listen to what they're confident about and you just think, how are we going to unravel this? So watch your heart in your pursuit of knowledge and thinking. There's glory seeking, and this is one of the first places, not going to be the last at all, it's one of the first places that our thinking and our minds is connected to our souls. You know what he says? Desiring to be teachers. Desire starts here. Teaching comes here. There's a connection. And that connection is what leads us to the second big category. He says, don't do this. In other words, order your thinking because if you don't, it's going to interrupt your being. And here's what he says is the aim of our being. Love. Increased love of God and of neighbor. If our thinking does not increase, our love of God and love of neighbor, go back and think about your thinking. We cannot have doctrinal precision that leads to passive disdain or disinterest in God and others. That, that just can't happen. It's not the way this works. That's what Paul says. It's not the way this works. So love. And love will come from a pure heart. This pure heart concept is taken from the Old Testament. It's pulled all the way through the New Testament. The word heart in the Bible stands for the totality of our affections. Everything from the inside as it spills out. In the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. And without purity there, nobility of character is impossible. This is one commentator says that a nobility of character without a purity of heart is clearly impossible. In other words, it doesn't matter how good of an actor you are, you will hate your own life and eventually it will go wrong if you don't have a pure heart from the inside. Trying to live out a noble character will be ultimately impossible, frustrating, and exhausting. Matthew chapter 5, 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart is what we're desiring. How can we understand God and the things of God by being pure in heart? 
Psalm 86.11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart. How do you walk in truth? Psalm 86 says. You see the connection here? I want to walk in truth. Well, what do I need to do? I need a united heart to fear your name. So a pure heart is what gives us proper being. A good conscience. Now, conscience is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It allows you to live in the light. That's what conscience, a good conscience, I believe, gives us. An ability to live in the light of who we are and who God is and what our obligations are to one another. A clear conscience is the kind of thing that moves a person to be able to confess in all humility their sins and their gifts and their graces. A clear conscience, as it's described in Scripture, is the kind of thing that basically amounts to soul rest. An ability to believe that who you are and what you're doing and ultimately where you're going has been redeemed by God and that you are cared for and in Him. That is a clear conscience. What a gift it is. This is a very difficult thing to get to, or at least to live there. I think God gives it consistently. It's one of the reasons we call you every week here. We're going we're gonna to scream the gospel over you and desire that the Spirit of God moves in you to say, I can rest, I've been accepted, I've been received, I know that I've confessed my sins, and what Jesus has done for me is mine. Because the gift of a clear conscience, wow, what a gift. Its worth is incalculable. Ever felt that? Just a, just a release from the striving. Just a release from the self-doubt. You shut the accuser up. You put him in the corner. You look to light. You feel received and loved and say, I can walk. I can keep on. What a gift the clear conscience is. Spirit of God, move that and give that to us. And Paul says, you need to see the connection between ordered thinking and this gift of the clear conscience. It's what we seek. He says this is the aim of our teaching. It's what we want to see happening in our people. And then ultimately, he summarizes it by saying this will result in a sincere faith. It literally means a faith without hypocrisy. Not a perfect faith or one that's released of doubt because a true faith can admit doubt and say, I'm having trouble here. It's the kind of thing that confesses, I believe, help my unbelief. And it's those kind of people, not pretending to be perfect or never doubting, not living in a Pollyannish world that ignores sin or their own problems, but a sincere, without hypocrisy faith. A faith that is driven by right and ordered thinking and delights in ordered being. Ultimately, the criteria that we judge any teaching by, right, that we ought to ask ourselves is, is what we're teaching creating the kind of being that God promises? If not, we go back to the doctrine. This love this pure faith, this clear conscience, it all comes not by our own effort. It's not by our own effort. So one of the things that I am commanded, I believe, by God to tell you every single week is that Jesus lived a life that you couldn't live and that he died for you and he welcomes you to himself. If I don't tell you that every week, then you've got to go find a clear conscience somewhere else. One of the things that we do to order ourselves in here is to come back to things that are true. Father, help us. Help us to believe these things, to stay committed to the right thinking, 
And I pray, God, that we would receive the good fruit of an ordered heart, an ordered life, an ordered conscience. These things are not our own doing, but yours. So, Spirit of God, give us these gifts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.